Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Thank you, Ali. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, do keep them open. It's good to see you all this morning. My name's Jez. I'm one of the leaders here at the church. And we're going to be looking at this passage in um, the book of Acts. Okay, well, first of all, though, just wanted to ask, who are your role models? Who are the people you look up to? Who are the people who you find inspirational? Uh, for some people, it's family. Parents can often be our role models if we've got a good relationship with them. Uh, it might be a teacher who had quite a big impact on you when you were at school. Uh, it could be a celebrity, maybe, a musician, an athlete, perhaps someone who made it big. Even if they come from your own community, you know, Marcus Rashford, he's a local lad. He's from Withington, and many people look up to him as a role model. And the thing with role models is what they do is they inspire us, they help us set our own direction. They can serve as a bit of a compass in life. We want to be like this person, and so we'll act in a certain way that, that um, is in accordance with who they are. And yes, to state the obvious, Christians should probably have Jesus as their role model. But it's not just individuals who have role models. Uh, institutions have role models as well. If you think about the world of business, many wish to be like big brands like Apple or Microsoft or Samsung. These are the sorts of companies that have been, as has been described, relentlessly relevant. They've endured through many years. Many seek to look to other um, companies as role models for sustainability. So, for example, the uh, clothing brand Patagonia, uh, which was started in 1973, was one of the first companies to use recycled materials in its clothing. In 1993, they released um, a set of fleeces that were made from recycled plastic bottles. Or a, a group like Tom's, they have a one-for-one one scheme that for every pair of shoes sold, they pledge to donate a couple to a child in, in need elsewhere in the, in, the, in, the, in the world. So these are companies that can be role models for others as they're starting to set up if they want to be ethical. Now, Grace Church is not a business in that sense, but we are an institution. We are a religious community. And we're here in a forward-thinking, fast-paced city like Manchester. And so for us to progress, we want to think through the question, well, what, what role model should we have? Where should we be looking to gain inspiration? And an answer is found not in some modern tech company, but actually in an old group of Christians who met 2,000 years ago. And we find it in this passage in Acts chapter 2. For those of you who are just joining us this week, we're looking at the book of Acts. Acts is um, the narrative account of the growth of Christianity. It begins with Jesus having been resurrected from the dead and then ascends. He ascends into heaven. And his disciples are left on earth 
They share the good news about who Jesus is, and the church slowly grows. It spreads all around the world. So this is the origin story of the church here in Acts. And in this passage, we're given a description of the first church that is created after Jesus sends his Holy Spirit. It's described for us. And right here, we have a role model. It's an old role model, but it's one in which our church, indeed every church, should look to for its inspiration. So what we're going to see then is the key components of this church in Acts and how that should relate to us as a church today. So let's have a look. Now, I should probably say, if you read this passage and look at this church in Acts, it can all seem a little bit idealistic. Everything seems to be wonderful and fine. Now, over the following chapters, we'll see that this church had its problems too. So we shouldn't be idealistic. But if we want a basic blueprint for what a church should be, we don't need to look any further than here. So let's look together. What are the key elements of this church? And what should be the key elements of any church? Well, first of all, biblical spirituality. Biblical spirituality. Look down with me at verse 42 in your Bibles. It says this about these Christians. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. Now, if you don't know, the apostles were basically the first leaders of the Christian faith after Jesus. They were sent personally by Jesus. They knew him. And Jesus gave them authority to teach the church. They comprised the 12 disciples and the apostle Paul. And we're told then in this new church, this fresh church, that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, for us today, the apostles' teaching has been codified in the Bible, in the New Testament. So every New Testament book has either been written by an apostle or by someone in close association with an apostle who an apostle has authorized. So we could say in modern terms that the early church was devoted to the Bible. So there wasn't just any sort of spirituality, it was a biblical one. Now notice um, two words in the sentence. First of all, devoted, verse 42, they were devoted. So these Christians lived and breathed the Bible and biblical teaching. They were disciplined in teaching it, in listening to it, in learning from it regularly. It was their bread and butter. And notice also the word, they. They were devoted. The church as a whole was coming under this teaching of the apostles. They were all given to it. There was not this sense of like, well, you know, the leaders, they study the Bible and they study the apostles' teaching, so I don't have to. To learn from this teaching was a whole church activity. Now, we're also told that these Christians were devoted to other things. If you look down again, verse 42, it says fellowship, which we'll come on to shortly. The breaking of bread, this is probably a reference to the Lord's Supper, We'll also see, you'll also see in previous verses that people got baptized, so they were devoted to baptism as well. And the church was to be devoted to prayer. Now, we've spoken a lot about prayer over the last few um, weeks at Grace Church. I won't add much here, only to say that a church cannot expect health if it does not pray. We are to be dependent on the Lord, devoted indeed to prayer as a church. But prayer, the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, all of these in some ways are still part of that umbrella biblical spirituality. Where do we learn to pray? 
where we can learn good models from scriptures, from the Bible. Where are we told to break bread, to baptize from the apostles' teaching? So in sum, these, these Christians were devoted to biblical spirituality. The scriptures are central. So a healthy church, Acts says, is a biblical church. And we, like every other church, are called to let the scriptures pervade every aspect of its life. Why is that? Well, it's because the Bible, its claim for itself is that it is God's word. It's not just words on a page. It is the authoritative speaking of Jesus himself to his people. When we open up the Bible and read it, we are hearing from God himself. That's its claim. That's the belief of Christians. So how do we devote ourselves to God's word in this church? Well, our primary way is through preaching. You know, I'm up here. I'm speaking for a few minutes. Uh, my job is not to just give you my opinions. I'm not just up here to do some sort of TED talk or a motivational speech. My job, if I'm doing it correctly, is to proclaim what the Bible says to us. That's why we're looking at Acts today. Now, one way churches do this is through what's called expository preaching. And that is we take Bible books or sections of Bible books and we teach through them systematically, bit by bit. And what this means is it enables the book itself to set the agenda for what we learn and listen to. And what we have to do is we have to let the Bible set the agenda, set the pace, and speak to all areas of life that it touches upon. And that includes things that it's easy for us to hear and easy for our culture to hear and things that are harder for our culture to hear. We have to let it speak in its fullness. That is the job. It's to be central to church life. And so at Grace Church, we do our best to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching through our sermons on a Sunday, through opening the Bible in our small groups, in seminars, in one-to-ones. I'm sure we can improve in a lot of ways, but this is a priority for us. Now, for many people in this church, everything I've just said is not particularly controversial. Um, in fact, many of you come here because you want to hear from the Bible. But still, there are concerns that are raised about this emphasis. Does it prioritize head knowledge over life change? Does it cater primarily to the educated and the bookish and can we overemphasize the Bible to the exclusion of other aspects of Christian experience? You know, a friend of uh, Hannah's who comes from a different church tradition um, once critiqued churches like ours, and she said, you know, you guys, you believe in the Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible, as if we kind of swapped out the Holy Spirit. Um, now, I think there's a bit of a false dichotomy, um, as the Bible is indeed the words of the Holy Spirit. So a little bit unfair, I think. But do we overemphasize the Bible? Well, if they're God's words, I don't think that's possible for us to do that. And what about bookishness? Is it, is it merely for the intellectual? Does it disenfranchise those who struggle to read or are not as educated? Well, what I should say is our aim here in opening the Bible is not to kind of sit and twiddle our mustaches and feel really clever about ourselves. We dive deep into Jesus' teaching in the Bible because these are the words of life. It's not here to make us feel clever about ourselves. We need them desperately. 
You know, to come to church and not have the Bible read or taught, it's kind of like coming home hungry after a long day of work, sitting down at a beautifully set table, but with no food given. Without devotion to the Bible, we will spiritually starve. Now, it's true some of us relish learning from the Bible. We love it. We want to dive deep. We want to get into all the details. For others of us, it feels difficult. You hear teaching on a Sunday morning. It might go over your head. You open up the Bible, look at a passage. You think, what on earth is that about? How could it possibly be relevant to my life? These are struggles that many of us have to deal with. Does that mean we can't be devoted to the apostles' teaching, though? I don't think so. I don't think so. Devotion is not the same as expertise. Devotion is not the same as expertise. You know, when I was a kid, I was devoted to playing football. Let me be honest with you, I was not very good at it for a long time. Still, as I practiced, I did see gains and improvements. Jesus doesn't ask us all to be Bible scholars and experts, but he does call us to be devoted to his word. That's a healthy mark of a church. Now, the good news, particularly if you feel like this is harder for you to connect with, is that none of us in the Christian life have made it. None of us have completed the Bible. We are all needing to be changed by it every day, and we're on a journey together, so let's help each other. But biblical spirituality is central. That's what we can learn from the early church, first of all. Secondly, the church had an attractive culture, an attractive culture. Verse 42, the church were devoted to another thing, fellowship, fellowship. Now, fellowship means literally a kind of mutual giving and receiving with others. And we see what this looks like. It's fleshed out in verse 44 and following. Look down at verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. If there is one word that sums sums up the culture of this church, it is that word together. They were together. They met every day, verse 46. They were deeply involved in each other's lives. They met in the Jewish temple. They met in homes. They ate together. These guys, they could not get enough of each other. They were in each other's pockets, it seems, joined at the hip. And so much so, you just notice what the culture is amongst these people. The generosity. They sold their stuff so that the needy amongst them had what they needed. They shared their home, their lives, their food, their clothing, perhaps. Why? Because they'd been bound together. They looked at each other. They looked at... Um, another Christian in the group, and they're like, you are like me, you are family. Here, have, have what I have, let's share it together. Now, this wasn't enforced communism, <laughs> ordered from top down from the leadership. It, it just seems to have sprung up naturally, organically. People voluntarily just wanted to share with their brothers and sisters in the church family because they loved each other so much. That is pretty amazing. And notice as well, I mean, in verse 41, this church is 3,000 people. It's a a mega church. And yet even in this huge church, 
the individual people could feel like they belonged because they did belong to each other in this culture of generosity. Isn't that wonderful? Now, we need both biblical spirituality and a fellowship culture. We need both in the church. There is something uniquely sad about a church that seems to say all the right things from the front, that teaches the Bible, that is orthodox on all the points of doctrine, and yet where there's just a a lack and a neglect of community, where people don't love each other, where they're not involved in each other's lives. We need both. The Christians were together. That's what it says about them. How together are we in this church? In the United States, apparently, you can get drive-through church. Drive-through church. Uh, this became more of a thing, I think, over here as well during COVID when we couldn't you know, gather with each other. But it did exist before then. And the idea is this. What happens at drive-through church is you, you go to the, um, the kind of parking the car park, you drive your car in, you get your spot. There's maybe a screen in front where a service can be um, kind of performed to you. You tune in your radio to the right frequency so you can hear what's going on. You look out your window, you might see someone in the next car and you give them a wave. You might even be able to honk your horn as a bit of interaction during the service. And so you watch um, the band play, you hear the sermon, and then at the end of the service, you turn your engine on and you drive away. Drive through church. Now, many of us would probably think that's a strange way to do church, that something's missing if you do it that way. But just consider that it is easy to come to a church like this one, to come in the front door, Take your seat, maybe give a wave to someone in another row, take in what's happening at the front, and then as the service ends, stand up and walk out and go home. The only difference between that and drive-through church is the car. Now, I'm not saying this because I want anybody to feel condemned, but it's just to show that we can be here on a Sunday morning, but not be together. We can easily just not participate in the community life of the church, even if we're physically here on a Sunday morning. And there are barriers to being together. Some of them are quite understandable. Um, Increasingly, I, I notice social anxiety is quite a big barrier to people being in Christian community. For some people, the idea of staying around for a cup of coffee after the service might be terrifying, let alone coming to a life group or a midweek meeting. You know, a few years ago, we we had a student who came to um, a welcome lunch we had for students at the beginning of term, first time at church, came along to that um, lunch. I learned afterwards, the student told me that that was the hardest thing that they had ever done. No exaggeration. But sometimes we avoid togetherness, not because there's a mental health issue, but because we like to keep people at a safe distance, not let them get too close. 
Oh, and by the way, you can be involved in lots of things in a church life and still keep people at a distance, not let them in. But if we look here in Acts 2, we want Grace Church to reflect something of the community that this early church had. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Isn't it so attractive just to read? The care for each other. The burdens that are shared amongst a group. Somewhere where everyone belongs. What, what can we do to, to push things forward? Now, I think our community life is great at Grace Church, actually. But, you know, we can't rest on our laurels. We can't pat ourselves on the back. There are always ways we can improve. What are the next steps? And what I would say to those of you who, who come fairly regularly, but, but perhaps feel more of a prod to be involved in, in church community, let us help you. We don't want to judge you, but we do want to help you integrate and connect. Believe it or not, Christian community is good for you. Honest. That's what the Bible says. And notice this culture then, this togetherness culture was attractive. Look at verse 47. The church enjoyed the favor of all the people. So as they were meeting in the temple or in homes, outsiders were able to have a look in. That's interesting, isn't it? They were, they were around. They were noticing. There was something attractive about this group. The, the life they had, the love for each other, the power perhaps shown in the services. There was something magnetic about it. They were drawn in. And what happened? Just look at the end of verse 47. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So people who weren't Christians, they saw this church, they found it attractive, and God used it to bring people into saving faith in Jesus. Every day, it says, people were becoming Christians. Now notice, the church had deep community. They really did belong to each other, but they were not just inward-looking It wasn't a Christian bubble or an echo chamber. Outsiders were present, they were looking in, and they liked what they saw. And God, in his mercy, chose to save many people in that group through this church. And that's what we would love to see at Grace Church as well. We have a vision statement, for those of you that are interested. And one of the things we say is that we aim to be a nurturing and engaging community. What we mean by that is we want other people to look in on our church family and see something that is attractive and be part of it. And if you're a visitor, you can tell us how well we're living up to that. We would love your feedback. But that's our desire. Not to be a holy huddle and inward looking. We want to love each other deeply and also welcome outsiders in. That's her heart and desire. And that's taken from the Bible. That's what the early church did. We want to love each other deeply and welcome others in so that they will see how amazing Jesus is too. And so this church can be a role model to us in being an attractive community. Okay, well, finally then, I guess the question is, how do we get to this? Okay? Devotion to biblical spirituality, a togetherness that's so strong you're willing to share your stuff with each other. I mean, how do you get there? Again, it can't be enforced top down, can it? I can't like command people. This stuff has to happen naturally or it won't happen at all. So what is the fuel that will light this fire? Well, the final way in which this church can be a role model to us is that they had transformed hearts. This behavior just doesn't happen in a vacuum. 
There was something deep within them that enabled them to live this kind of life. There are two things I want to draw your attention to in the passage. Look at verse 43. Awe. Everyone was filled with awe. But also, joy. Look at verse 46 and 47. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. Awe and joy. Together. So let's think about them both. What does it mean to be filled with awe? A few weeks ago, I rewatched the film Interstellar for the first time in a while. Christopher Nolan film. If you've not seen it, it's basically a space film. And, you know, sci-fi, space, the cosmos, there's something about it, isn't there, that kind of creates a sense of wonder in us. The thought of the, the scale of space, its distance, the, the planets, the stars, it fills us with wonder. And I think that wonder is captured well in the film. There are two particular moments that stand out to me. Uh, one is where the characters are on a water planet. And on this planet, there are the biggest waves that you could ever imagine. One character um, looks at the skyline. It looks like what she thinks are mountains. But in fact, she can tell as the, as the water is moving closer that it's not mountains. It's, it's a wave, a 4,000-foot wave, apparently. That's bigger than um, two... Um, Empire State Buildings on top of each other. 4,000 feet. And the way the camera work displays them, the way it's shot, you kind of feel a funny feeling in your stomach when you see this body of water coming closer. It is awesome. The other moment is where you see um, the black hole in the film, which is called Gargantua. There's uh, an image of it. Apparently, the special effects designers worked hard to try and create this image that was as true to real life as possible. And you can see there the, the black hole, the black center, with light being dragged into it. There's a beauty to it, but it's also awesome. The sense of scale, you can see just the ship um, in the foreground with this absolutely massive black hole in the background. It is awesome. Now, when do you feel awe? What makes something awesome? Well, we are awed at things that are bigger than us, generally. And with the waves on the planet and the black hole, that's a, they're good examples, aren't they? They're so stupefyingly big that they create a sense of wonder. And so for us to be truly awed by something, it has to be greater than us. But there's a, something that goes along with that. For something that is bigger than us, greater than us, that often means it is also out of our control. We cannot control a black hole or a 4,000-foot wave. And so something that is awe-inspiring will also tend to contain great power. And if the circumstances are right, can then threaten us if you get too close to a black hole, its gravitational pull will rip you apart. And it's the same with waves. You know, today, many people are awed when they go to see Niagara Falls or Victoria Falls. But if you fall into those waterfalls and come under the power of that water, you are not coming back again. It's out of our control. So the things that fill us with awe are of such scale and power that we are at their mercy. And should they choose to work against us, 
we can often do very little about it. It is no wonder the word awe in the passage we're looking at in Acts is also translated fear. There is something fearsome about the things that are awesome. So why was everyone in the early church filled with awe? Well, in verse 43, it says that they were in awe at signs and wonders, that is, miracles, performed by the apostles. And we'll think more about these signs and wonders, I'm sure, in coming weeks. They were there to authenticate the message of these apostles. But there is something slightly odd about our passage, or the way it's been translated. So the Bibles we have, the NIV... They say, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. But in the original language, and in many English translations, there is an extra and put in there. So, for example, the English Standard Version says, awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The point is this, the original language seems to suggest that the people were in awe at the signs and wonders, but not just in awe at the signs and wonders, There was other stuff going on that created this sense of wonder, of awe, perhaps even fear. What was it? What was it? Well, let's take our minds back to the previous passage. Um, This church we saw last week was made up of people in Jerusalem who had heard a sermon by the Apostle Peter. And Peter's message was basically this. In this very city, Jerusalem, there was a man, Jesus Christ, who was killed. But he was not an ordinary man. He is actually Lord. He is king over everything. He's the Son of God. And what happened was he was crucified. But God, his Father, literally resurrected his body, brought him back to life, and has now made him the ruler of all things. He's now stood at the right hand of his father. So Jesus is no ordinary man. He is God in the flesh. And here's the punchline Peter gives to the people. You killed him. You crucified him. Look at verse 36. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Then verse 37, it says that when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. I mean, can you imagine? Realizing that you had been responsible for the death of the most important person in existence. God's very own son. I mean, they're cut to the heart. You get the sense that they, it's almost as if they can see the blood on their own hands. What do you do? I mean, at that moment, it's as if they're standing in front of a 4,000-foot tidal wave, isn't it? What is due to them for their actions? The crowds realize that they are in grave danger. They are on the wrong side of a force infinitely bigger than them. If God visits in his justice, they have no chance. No wonder they ask, verse 37, what do we do? That's awe. But also joy. There's joy as well. By the time they're in the church, they have glad hearts, and they are praising God, we saw, not just cowering in fear. How come? 
Because these Christians had realized that despite their guilt, despite what they had done, and what was due to them in punishment by a great God, this same God had saved them. This great God had actually not set himself against them, but for them. And it turned out that in a strange paradox, the death of Jesus was not just the greatest injustice in history, though it was that. It was also planned by Jesus, by his Father, because this is the way in which all of his people could be saved, forgiven, brought into his family. Every wicked action, every intention of our heart that is impure, every tendency we have towards what is wrong, even if we don't act on it, the corruption in ourselves can be washed away and dealt with, can be forgiven. Even the action of crucifying Jesus himself can be forgiven. Why? Because in Jesus' death, he took the punishment on behalf of his people. He faced the tidal wave of God's justice. He was ripped apart so that even those responsible for his death could be forgiven. When these people in Jerusalem realized the weight of their guilt, but then also realized that Jesus had come precisely to pay for that guilt and bring them into his family, there was joy. They praised God because he had been so good to them. And they joined the church in their thousands And then they saw more of God's power. They saw more people understanding this message, more people being brought into the church. And it overflowed into this incredible culture where they share with each other, they love each other. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching. They want to hear what God's words are. So how do we gain this culture? How do we gain this togetherness? How do we gain this biblical spirituality with the devotion that this passage speaks of? through awe and joy. Christian friends, have you lost your awe? Do you know the God who you stand before and his mighty power? I mean, the best, the best thing I can do to illustrate is use something like a black hole or a tidal wave. It's a created thing. God made all the stars, all the world, all the cosmos just by speaking. How powerful is he? How holy? And what has he done to save you? By sending his son to die. Awe and joy. If we've lost it, then we should pray that the Lord would return it to us. Perhaps we need that joy and awe restored. As we come to a close, here's an easy way to have that awe and joy restored this morning. Because we can see the power of God amongst us, even in this meeting. And we're seeing it in evidence today because two people are being baptized. Nileen and Christopher. That is an awesome and a joyful thing. Just think, what is baptism symbolizing? The fact that two people who were once dead and cut off from God have been forgiven. They've been brought to life through the work of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit waking them up. Jesus has paid for their punishment. He's given them a new heart, a heart that wants to live for him. That is a miracle. It is a miracle that anyone would become a Christian, would follow Jesus. 
It does not happen outside the power of the Holy Spirit. And God has worked this miracle amongst us in this community, and we get to celebrate with Christopher and Nileen. Jesus is at work amongst us. That is cause for joy, and it is cause for awe. Those of you who are here today uh, who are not Christians, I hope you've learned something about what we're trying to do and why we're here. Uh, We don't gather as a community purely for social utility. We're not here just so people can feel like they belong, although we do do that. The church isn't just, it doesn't just exist to help save people from loneliness or disconnection, although it does do that, hopefully. We are here because we are people who have come before an awesome God who know who we are before him and have turned to Jesus for refuge and have received that refuge and it's created joy in us. That's why we're here. It is Jesus who is the center of why we do this church thing. We gather as people who have been brought from death to eternal life and that is available to any of you here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would help us as a church to be like the church that you started in Jerusalem all those years ago. Father, help us to be devoted to prayer, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and yes, to the apostles' teaching. Forgive us, Lord, where we have been casual about these things, creating us a passion and a zeal that is appropriate and right to honor you. And Lord, help us to be a church that is together. May there be more and more um, expressions of generosity amongst us. Lord, help us to love each other, to bear with one another despite our flaws and our failings, to say to each other, "What, what is mine is yours. And Lord, where we have lost our awe, show us your greatness. Where we have domesticated you, forgive us. Where we have not seen you in all your power and glory, Lord, show us again a vision of you in your greatness. And give us the joy that comes from knowing what you've done for us through Jesus. And Lord, we pray that our church would be an attractive community. May others see May others come to find life in Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.